1: Hello, Trojan fans, and welcome to episode number 186 of the Peristyle Podcast. Today is September 12th, 2011. We've got a great show for you this week on the podcast. Lots to get to. The USC Trojans are 2-0 after defeating Utah in the first ever Pac-12 conference football game. The score was not 17-14. The score was actually 23-14, so we're going to talk about all of that With Dan Weber, we're going to get into some recruiting with Gerard Martinez. Uh, We've just posted target lists for offense and defense on the front page of uscfootball.com. So recruiting is still rolling along as the season gets going as well. So those two things work in parallel. We're going to talk all about recruiting with Gerard Martinez. We want to hear your questions. We've got a bunch of them today. If you have any questions or comments, we'd love to hear from you. Email us, podcast at uscfootball.com. Or give us a call, 206 888 6755 is the number. Leave us a voicemail. We'll play that voicemail on the podcast and answer your question to the best of our ability. And instead of Harvey Hyde, this first segment, Harvey Hyde's driving out to Las Vegas to do some of his business, Coach Harvey Hyde. So we're going to talk to Dan Weber in the first segment, USCFootball.com. Beat writer Dan, thanks for joining us. How are you doing?
2: Very good. Uh, caught up from the weekend and ready to, ready to go for another week here.
1: Yeah, it's a. Uh, Cracking out a lot of stuff again, Dan. We appreciated some some great stuff. And, we, you know, we've had some comments on the message boards. We really try to hit it hard when we go down to the games. We put up a bunch of videos and photos and lots of stories and analysis, everything that was going on down there at the Coliseum. And uh, I know, you know the first game, obviously, went by two points over Minnesota. People weren't super excited about that, I guess you could say. But it went over Utah, in my opinion. I mean, it's a good team. That's a team that, you know, beat Alabama in the Sugar Bowl, went undefeated a couple of years ago. This is a good team, first ever Pac-12 game. I think a a game like this, you win by three or you win by nine or whatever the score ends up being. I think USC fans should be happy with this win, even though if it wasn't as pretty as some would have liked it have been.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think uh, uh, the score is somewhat irrelevant. I thought they, uh, you know, they challenged uh, uh, a big time defensive line. I think that you know you didn't have that sense with Minnesota that they had great players but but uh Utah had some guys that could compete uh, you know I don't have a lot of them but uh, a couple of the, the you know defensive linemen could absolutely play for anybody and uh you know I thought they uh you know they challenged them pretty well um uh, uh, you you, know, you really would like to see a of offensive situation that that works out better than they uh you know with a return of Mark Tyler you would have thought they had more offensive answers than to end up having to, you know, turn the ball over once and, and punt five straight times. Uh, not, you know, not. I mean, they they are stopping themselves. They're doing little things. They're just not uh, as polished as you'd like. Uh, I a real shame. Uh, Marquise Lee has the the really big uh, big time play where he looks like you know an NFL receiver. Uh, catching the ball and, uh, you know, taking the hits and uh, and all of that and have that play negated. and uh, You know, just in general, there's still, uh, uh, you know, a lot of rough spots and still not getting very many guys in the game. I mean, just 47 players in this week. Again, uh, you know, the opponent plays a lot more guys than you do. Uh, what we like, though, is those guys that were playing were still playing awfully hard at the end of that game and determined – Unlike last year, they weren't going to, you know, give up and weren't going to drop their dollar and weren't going to, you know, no matter how many things went against them in terms of uh, replay reviews and, you know, all that kind of stuff that was happening, uh, penalties and uh, where they look like they stop them, they don't get a stop, look like they stop them, don't get a stop. I do think that they handled that well. And they, there's a, an attitude that uh, they didn't have last year, and uh, that's a really good thing. Uh, and, you know, I was, we were just talking about they hadn't broken the 20-point mark, but I guess uh, if, you, uh, if you factor in the, uh, the, re, you know, the, the final score, I guess they actually did. You know, I think everybody walked over there. Now, Lane said he thought, I think, on that last play that it was a, it was a score. I thought the same thing. And I know I was walking around on the field asking people, did they take the score away? did the touchdown not count what happened, you know, and no one seemed to know everyone just assumed that wasn't a touchdown. Uh, it was a weird, It was obviously now that the final decision we hear from the PAC 12 is they had ruled it a touchdown. The only problem was no one signaled it a touchdown. No one told anybody it was a touchdown. You know, the uh, official, when he finally gave his, uh, his, uh, uh, one statement uh, on the PA basically just said it was a dead ball foul, and that's automatically negated and ran off the field, you know. And, uh, but you got to signal a touchdown, folks. Uh, Lane signaled a touchdown. That didn't do much good. But <laughs> I, I, I thought we learned everything that you could learn about the new rule. I mean, did anyone really think that the first team that the new rule would either apply to or be focused on would not be USC? Right. I mean, come on. It had to be USC. I mean, one they were showing the uh, examples of that rule from last year. Which which, which play did they show? Again, a Torrin Harris <laughs> return of a block kick. I mean, USC. That rule could have been called the USC rule, probably. Uh, uh, and and the fact that they end up not getting hurt by it is is really interesting. Uh, I thought and something for people to think about lane had a really good point he said here's what he was thinking about he said what if that play occurs on a play where the game is tied and it goes into overtime and they play overtime and let's say utah scores and usc doesn't utah gets on the plane heading back to salt lake city he said two hours later did the Pac-12 officials call up and say, oh, you know, there really wasn't overtime because we gave USC those six points. And he said, and then the the Utah plane lands in Salt Lake City and someone's there to tell them, uh, by the way, USC got those six points that overtime didn't count and you guys lose. He said, that would be interesting, wouldn't it? Yes. Yeah, that would be interesting. That would I mean, really, there are so many thing, issues that came out of that last play that uh, – uh, someone has to really think about. It's probably not a good rule. I think any rule where you take points off the board, you're really asking for trouble. And the people on the NCAA football rules committee who made that rule probably ought to think twice about it. I, I don't know that you should ever have a rule that takes points off the board. That's just asking for trouble.
1: No, That's a great point, and Dan. And uh, it was funny. We got So there was, I'll give everyone a kind of a background of what was going on. We did get a couple emails from Donald. He emailed me soon after the game ended about D- did you have any doubt that it was going to be USC that got involved in this and what's going on? But and then I got an email from him like an hour later saying, "Oh, it looks like we got the points back," and it was kind of funny. So he wanted to get some clarification, and we you know we talked about it a lot on the site what everything that happened. But you know we taped a instant analysis piece where we thought the score was seventeen to fourteen, and we taped. Uh, you know interviews, and you you know you thought I think even the players in the uh, in the press conferences, everyone thought the score was one thing, and then it switches to something else. And you know it, it was interesting, Dan, because they did go over what that rule was pretty thoroughly. And they asked a question. I remember talking about like say the quarterback is at the you know if a player is running in from the the five and he dives from the two spot foul from the two on sportsmanlike conduct comes out to the seventeen with the fifteen yard penalty. If the quarterback, if Barkley's back at the 35 and throws a bomb to uh, Marquise Lee, and he's streaking down the sidelines, easily going to score, and Barkley points at a defensive lineman for, at the standing at the 35 and says, you know, in your face or whatever, he gets the unsportsmanlike from there. The ball comes back to the 35 plus 15. He's at the 50 instead of scoring a touchdown, and so there was different scenarios discussed, but it never came up that only personal fouls or only uh, you know, fouls that are on players that are involved in the play, uh, not people on the sidelines, can take the score off the board. That's one thing that wasn't gone over that we that we heard about. And obviously that's what ended up happening here. In this case, it was a bench foul, and then they put those points back on the board. But like you said, Dan, the, the official, you could see him, he never said touchdown game is over. He just said game is over.
2: And nobody raised their arms either. I mean, when you look at the uh, replay, you see Lane raising his arms and Lane was still off the field. Lane was just on the sideline, but, uh, you, you know, he was not the only one who, uh, uh, stayed on the sidelines. Uh, and yet, uh, I mean, I was surprised at the very moment the ball is blocked, you know, you have probably got eight or 10 USC kids already on the field. I mean, now that was great. They were so into the game and they knew as soon as the ball is blocked games over USC wins. Uh, and, uh, you know, probably. I mean, I guess there's, uh, you know, some scenario that, that you know, but Torrin Harris, I mean, he got the ball so quickly and was headed the other way that it was almost instantaneous. But you're right. They uh, and, and, and we really thought that the new Pac-12 crew did a tremendous job in terms of preseason preparing everybody for everything and going over it for themselves. Uh, and uh, I thought – After the play was over, after the game was over, we heard from them at least three different times from the top two people in the Pac-12 and the vice president of uh, public relations for the uh, uh, Pac-12. That probably wouldn't have happened last year. Last year, I think it would have been very difficult to track down all the people in the Pac-12 who needed to say something about what happened on the last play. I thought they were very responsive. And they kept trying to answer the questions, and you know, from tweeting from uh, Mike Pereira uh, to an official ruling from Mike Pereira, uh, while we were still in the press box, uh, even though it was two hours afterward. And then, um, and then the uh, final uh, ruling you know, from Tony Corrente, the um, uh, supervisor of uh, football officials, that came on Sunday, uh, and he admitted they did not communicate. You know now what we couldn't be sure of was did they get the call right because that wasn't communicated very well and they kept saying yes the officials on the field got the call right they didn't take the touchdown off well they didn't give it to them either they didn't get they didn't make a call about that now they may have all known that they uh, they weren't taking the touchdown off the board but they need to tell people and that's what they've said that this raises uh, an issue with the pac 12 that they have to communicate better with everybody else, you know, with the press box. If you don't communicate with the press box, they can't tell the people at the game. People at the game didn't know if it counted or not. I mean, here, Lane thought it did because he had a similar scenario in the Tennessee-Alabama game a couple of years ago with people running onto the field on the last play. And he knew that it was a dead ball foul. And uh, so he just assumed that that the score counted, but he he said he didn't see anybody signal the score. No one told him the score counted, and he said he didn't really care because they got a win, and he wasn't you know. But he did he did say um, uh, last night in the conference call, he said I guess that'll make USC fans happier. I hope they um, hope they didn't tear up their tickets. Right. So Maybe <laughs> maybe Harvard's going back to um, cash in some of those tickets. I yeah. don't know. Uh, <laughs>
1: I know it's great. I mean, and the
2: very fact that the game would happen to go from uh, 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 three points to nine uh, to nine points when the spot, the final spot on the game was eight and a half points, so to just get it over, you know, the eight and a half points that USC was giving is really weird. That it becomes a nine-point game uh, and changes everything. I mean, it flips every one of those. Uh, you know. Every bet in Las Vegas gets flipped.
1: Yeah, not not it's, that it had a lot of sympathy for Vegas, but yeah, you know, I think they took a bath. Mostly. Oh no, no,
2: none whatsoever. Yeah. But just the idea that it would draw the most attention because it happened to change the you know change every bet. Yeah, uh, it's just weird, you know, because that's what you, people were saying. Because it started out as a ten point game. Well, if it was still a ten point game, it wouldn't have mattered. Right. It went to an eight and a half point game, and then it actually really matters. Uh, who knows how much? As some people you know said, for example, that might be a game that would draw a lot of attention from the Utah people, and they really uh, uh, you know probably spend a lot of time in Las Vegas from what everything we're told and uh, the USC games, I guess, just normally uh, because of Los Angeles normally draw a lot of a lot of people wagering on them in, in las vegas where it's uh, where it's legal and uh, so you have the maximum impact of a uh, of a decision like that it's hard to say a reversal it's not a reversal but it's a reversal of what everyone thought the score was anyway
1: yeah you got people coming from the 15 in both directions heading to vegas to cash in those tickets well let's get to some of these questions dan um this one actually was sent before the game and i think it's still applicable now Uh, you know we do the show on mondays this came in before saturday's game but Um, it's still, we still, like you already mentioned, They're still kind of seeing the same sort of thing with players. Here you go.
3: Hi, I'm, my name is David. I'm sure that I'm one of the many frustrated Trojan fans who waited all through last year, hearing about the, the lack of players on the team. And this, and when I went to the game, he didn't play any, any players at all. And this is very frustrating. I don't believe that he, he only has two good football players on this team. And I wanna know what he's going to do about this. Isn't anybody gonna stand up and ask him? Thank you.
2: Well, David, uh, actually we've been asking I guess every single week, uh, and we've been asking during the week. And Lane admitted last night he said, I'm I know I'm telling you I'm gonna play more players. I know I wanna play more players. I'm not doing a very good job of playing more players. But I promise you this week against Syracuse, we're going to play more players. He said, I know, I know, it sounds like a broken record. I know it sounds like I keep saying that. But really, we are. He said, we got Lamar Dawson in for two series. Um, it's a real problem. There's no question about it. it it's, uh, I think it's a – last year, you know, we kind of assumed – we knew they had, you know, some guys that they redshirted and there was a reason to redshirt them that could have helped. George Yuko, for example, even as a true freshman, would have certainly helped the tackle rotation. They had guys in the secondary who could have played, and they held them out. And so you have a sense of, okay, with the sanctions coming and all of that, uh, there is a reason to maybe just try to get through, even though it cost them at least three games at the end. This year, there are enough players. There are enough bodies, and they're still not getting in. They played uh, – three guys in the secondary, TJ, McDonald, and uh, both cornerbacks, 73 plays in the game. And that's way too much. And I know, you know, Nickel couldn't handle one punt because he'd gotten hit, but he looked tired, you know. and and, uh, Again, they didn't look terribly tired on on the last series, and that's to to their credit. But uh, they have to figure out a way to get more players in the game. And if it's because the schemes are still too complex, still too much NFL like and they only feel like they can get maybe the starters ready which is what happens in the NFL. You know, you know, you basically um, you hold your breath if you put a sub in in the NFL. They basically basically coach the you know the starters. And right now it seems to be what's happening with this team and uh, they have to figure out a way uh, you know, to get other, you know, other guys up to speed. For example, you know, they, Martin Coleman gets his first start. And I think he got 43 plays, which was surprising that we didn't, I don't think realize he got that many plays, but he got his shoulder knocked out a couple of times. And now you've got a guy, uh, you know, uh, luckily in their case, they have Jeremy Golden who, who played the first game and he can go back in there. But, uh, you know, they're they're within one player in a lot of places about you know putting another guy in who hasn't played yet and uh that's not necessarily a good thing as they said you know what happens when you play a lot of freshmen uh, the first time the freshman plays they still have freshmen who haven't played yet and um you know when they get a chance you know, how wouldn't you like to have maybe play them in the first couple of games so it's a problem we talked to him about it, it to be honest I think for the people covering the team, it was the one thing we almost guaranteed. We weren't sure maybe, you know, this was going to happen or that was going to happen or whatever, but the one thing I think all of us agreed on after watching practice where they do play everybody. I mean, if you're, you know, on the, on the second team offense or defense, you get a lot of plays in practice. And uh, with what the coaches were telling us, we said – They're going to play a lot of players. That's how they're practicing. That's what they tell us. They know they have to. They know they got hurt badly last year by not having enough players ready to go for games. And here we have the first two games, and they're averaging 45 players a game. And the opponents are probably averaging 10 more than that. Uh, That's not good. And Lane knows it. He says he's trying to do something about it. I believe he really believes he is. But... When when push comes to shove in the game, it doesn't look like right yet they've had the nerve to actually put those kids in. So, we agree.
1: We agree, yeah. Well, here's another one on that, too. There's a question about the cornerbacks. It's another uh, voicemail question from Chris out in uh, Fontana, I believe.
3: Hey, guys. It's Chris calling from Fontana. Huge uh, SC fan and alum. Uh, a couple observations and a question. Uh, first observation is, what on earth was going on with Red Ellison and Matt Barkley? It's, there seemed to be a huge disconnect there, uh, pretty much all game long. It was good to see uh, Grimble come in and, and make some great plays. Um, second observation, Tony Burnett um, at corner. Good to see him on the field, but I had, have my concerns with uh, you know him just kind of not looking back for the football, uh, kind of barreling through the receiver, and obviously you know he escaped one pass interference call. And then I obviously got the uh, second one called on him. So just have some concerns with him at, uh, at corner. Um, and then uh, obviously our second uh, half production. I mean, uh, obviously there's a huge difference between, you know, Pete Carroll and Lane Kiffin with Pete Carroll's teams coming out and just performing uh, extremely well, turning things around in the second half. Obviously we're not seeing that production uh, with Lane Kiffin. Uh, and so – just uh your thoughts on our poor second half performances um love the podcast guys and uh fight on.
2: well uh let's see chris i think lane took the heat for uh some of the uh uh barkley and ellison uh miscommunication uh, the interception he said was um um that was his fault uh it was a play they weren't really weren't sure enough of um uh, truly don't know what happened, didn't get a talk to Rhett, and don't know what exactly happened on the play where Rhett's just running that you know kind of little circle route and doesn't even look for the ball. And, and Barkley looked like he had determined, predetermined it, that Rhett was going to get it, and Rhett looked like he had predetermined he wasn't going to get it. Uh, I think some of those factor into what the problem is in the second half. You put enough of those plays together – where you have guys who are on, aren't, aren't on the same page. Uh, you know, either, you know, they're not on the same page with the coach who uh, calls a play that they're really not ready to run or, uh, or they just show you by their execution they're not ready to run the play. I mean, how sad is it that Marquise Lee has the big you know, uh, crossing route, great catch, all of that negated by the fact that he lined up on the line of scrimmage and covered up the tight end and they got an illegal formation. Uh, a lot of that tells me that there's they're running too much offense and uh, let's say the first half you run uh, a bunch of stuff and then the second half you come out and you run a bunch of new stuff. I'm not sure you know, at the college level, can you be ready to run all that stuff perfectly? Uh, and there is a complexity issue with uh, with what they're doing. Now the fact that they're lead in the second half both times now, uh, also may you know, add another layer of uh of uh conservatism, you know, where you think, well, we won't take any chances or we're, you know, uh just there's just you know, one thing after another maybe that that you know, I think is it a little bit of um learning on the job? Yeah, probably. Uh, I think uh it's hard. It's hard to you know be a big time college football coach, and it's hard to be a big time college football coordinator and to do both of them and be thirty six years old is probably even harder and to do it with a really young team with high expectations adds another layer of of, of difficulty you know so uh, I think they're trying to do some really difficult things and they're trying to do do it at a at a very high level with young players and uh I think there might be a disconnect between what those young players are capable of doing, what those coaches are capable of teaching, and what they can execute. And um, it seems to be biting them in the second half uh, and on offense, uh, which is interesting. The fact that, you know, the defense, they look, uh, they're not, you know, playing a lot more players, but the ones they're playing look stronger and tougher and uh, more determined that they're not going to give in in the second half. But uh, the mistakes of the offense don't look to be kind of, uh, you know, fatigue mistakes or uh, inability to, you know, compete physically. They just seem to be careless uh, or, uh, you know, it's hard to say exactly, you know, and, and in terms of, um, you know, because it's something different on a lot of them. It's just, uh, uh, but, but it happens a lot of times on, on maybe plays you're seeing for the first time. Or plays, they're running for the first time, and uh, you know, you know, maybe uh, you watch the NFL games, and that's one of the reasons I'm not crazy about the NFL. Although, if you see enough games like the the Jets and and the Cowboys last night, were you know, they, they're just interesting, even if they're not really all that very well executed. Uh, but uh, it just looks like teams are trying to do stuff they can't do. I mean. If the NFL guys aren't able to do what they're trying to do, boy, you know you got these ten-year veterans, thirty-year-old guys can't execute. Uh, you got to think that twenty-year-old kids, eighteen-year-old, nineteen-year-old kids uh, that are much closer to high school are going to have trouble executing at that level. And I'm not sure you should be asking them to execute at that level. Just, just a, a thought here. But a lot of the emphasis in the off season was on simplifying making things less complex, and uh, I'm not sure that has happened uh, successfully yet.
1: All right. Uh, well, thanks for that question, Chris. Let's go to Perry in Connecticut, Dan. He says, I love the podcast, and I want to first say that I'm proud the way SC has managed to win close games this year, and they look much faster on both sides of the ball. Not always in the right place, but at least they're playing fast, and you have to admire and respect that. Uh, three questions he has. One, what's going on with Kyle Prater and Christian Thomas? He wanted to see them have a breakout year and is excited to see them sign their letter of intent in 2010. He thought it was, it was going to be this year. Um, second, why does the offense seem to get worse as the game progresses? Uh, USC had better athletes and still turned the ball over three times and allowed Utah to stay in the game. And third, USC averaged about 30 points per game in the first half of the season but got worse as the season progressed, do you ex- do you expect more of the same this year?
2: Uh, that's, that's a good question. Um, I think that Christian Thomas is strictly a health issue. He's had a hip uh, injury that uh, has really limited him until just recently. The other two tight ends have really played well. The other two freshman tight ends, uh, which allowed them to move Rhett to the uh, you know the fullback spot and. Got that many kids? I think the three uh, three guys who capable of playing tight end. Uh, there was no necessity to rush Christian uh, Christian back quickly. Uh, so I think they're letting him take his time. Uh, that position isn't all that deep though uh, for next year. So if you know you graduate Red, you know you basically you got the two tight ends. So I know people have thought, well, should we should they think about moving Christian back to defense where he played some last year? uh I think right now they want to keep him a tight end. I think he's got a great burst. He gives you something different from the other two uh and if uh you know last year they had talked about moving him to the you know the fullback spot he may be uh groomed to be the next red Ellison where he gets to you know play some fullback because of his real athleticism uh so we'll see uh, but I wouldn't worry about Christian other than the fact that his he's got a you know, hip injury that was coming along a little slowly and looks like it's it's coming around now. Kyle Prater don't have a good answer for, um, uh, he certainly gets thrown the ball in practice, uh, and catches the ball in practice. Uh, you know, I think that he's six, five and, and doesn't have maybe the same ability as Mike Williams did to create like a zone of around him where he has, uh, you know, the freedom to, um, run, you know, into traffic and crossing routes and things like that. But, um, uh, and, and so, know I think people really do try to hold him up at the line of scrimmage and, uh, he, you know, at maybe 20 pounds lighter than, uh, than Mike Williams was, that that's a little more work for him to, to work on, uh, you know, the, uh, releasing at the line of scrimmage, but, uh, you know, he hasn't looked bad in practice, uh, you know, from what we can see, you know, we don't, you know, we're not, you know, privy to the plays they're calling and things like that, but he does seem to. Uh, to get open, he does seem to catch the ball in practice, and he catches it in crowds and things like that. So, uh, and I, you know, personally, I, I really like Kyle. I, I just like his approach to to everything, and I'm a big Kyle uh, Prater booster. So uh, let's hope, you know, let's hope that works. Uh, as far as um, maybe this year, you know, we'll reverse last year. Last year it did come fairly easy offense, you know, the first part of the season. I know one of the ways that, that Matt Barkley, for example, was trying not to tail off is uh, I think he thought he probably put too much into you know, uh, fall practice, for example, and just pushed himself uh, too hard to the point where he did you know kind of get dead legs and dead arm, and then he got injured. And I think he's approaching this more like an NFL guy where he's not leaving it on the practice field. And, uh, you know, we could see, like, the last 10 days before the season started that he really uh, started amping it up. And I think, you know, I think that will help. Uh, I, I think, and, uh, you know, but the fact that they're getting leads and then they just seem to not be able to, you know, close the close it out and really uh, drop the hand. I, I mean, the thing about it that was different with Pete's team, and I think people forget this, is when they got a lead – They forced you to do things offensively that maybe you didn't want to do, throw the ball over the top, throw the ball deep. They wanted you. For example, one of the differences is when Pete's teams got teams third and long, they're like, okay, our ball, we're coming up with this. This is going to make a short field for the offense. And the offenses, when Pete was here, uh, at least for the first half of uh, of the Pete tenure, got a lot of short fields because they were, you know, close to the top in the nation and takeaways. That hasn't happened. It wasn't happening at the end of Pete's tenure, and it isn't happening now. And uh, so they don't get any short fields. They're not getting any easy scores. And I think that really is hurting, uh, you know, in terms of uh, of their ability to, you know, put points on the board. Uh, It doesn't look like they're able to force teams – to uh, I mean, for example, last night, I mean, that kid, I gave Jordan Wynn uh, or Saturday night, the, the Utah quarterback, uh, a veteran, but coming off shoulder surgery that didn't allow him to, you know, do anything in the spring or the summer, and he had to take it easy in practice. He didn't have He, he wouldn't throw on two days, and he's flipping the ball, and one would have thought that he would have been a candidate, you know, to, uh, especially at third and longs and that, to, To be turning the ball over, and it doesn't seem like USC is able to execute on those plays. Uh, Now, I give Utah credit; they made a lot of diving catches and uh, uh, just, you know, just were you know out uh, out hustled you know the USC kids. I don't think the technique is real good for man, and Lane talked about that that they have to get better in man-to-man coverage because they probably should be playing more of it, and uh, they're not doing a very good job right now. So, um, you know, we'll see. I, I think the secret there to scoring more is to get, get some takeaways and get some short fields and get some relatively easy scores. And that really, really made a difference uh, uh, with the, uh, the way, uh, uh, you know, USC executed. And I'll give you I'll give this. Um, uh, Norm Chow was there the other night. And I thought Norm was really good, and, and I think there was always this misunderstanding about who was responsible for everything on offense, and that was kind of a became a negative uh, episode in terms of that whole uh, you know era of USC football. But I do think Norm, the one thing that you really had to like about Norm is he was setting things up. He would do things in the first half to set things up in the second half. I don't think there's any any doubt about that. And uh, and he would set you up for big plays. And uh, you know, the first half May, you know, you might have some some uh plays that didn't look all that good, but in in some ways he was setting you up. I'm not sure uh there are other people around who have that same ability as Norm to do that one thing. Now there were there is a downside to that too to some extent, but, but I do think uh that ability uh to uh to kind of set people up. Uh maybe we don't see and and maybe that's one of the tough parts about being the the play caller and the head coach you have a whole lot of things to think about at halftime if you're the head coach and you're also the play caller and uh, having a guy you know as an offensive coordinator whose only job is to think about those second half plays and setting them up and all of that at halftime um, might be a good way to go and you know does the head coach have the time to be thinking about how he's been setting things up uh, over halftime for that adjustment to the second half, if he's also the head coach responsible for all the things the head coach is responsible for in a game. I think it's an issue. I don't, I don't think there's any question that's an issue. All
1: right. Well, hey, Dan, we still have some more questions. We're kind of out of time for this segment. Maybe we'll, if you want to stick around for one more and we can uh, get to the rest of these. Is that okay?
2: Oh, yeah, absolutely. Okay, cool. Yeah. So
1: we'll – uh, We'll give Gerard the, the day off. Um, <laughs> we did not have any recruiting questions this week. We do have more team questions. So we're going to come back uh, in 30 seconds. We'll come back with Dan Weber. We'll finish up these questions and keep talking about USC-Utah and that heading into the Syracuse game. Stay tuned.
0: Meet us on the other side of the break for more of the Peristyle Podcast. Tickets, tickets, tickets. SC Tickets is your concert, sports, and theater ticket source. We now return to the Peristyle Podcast and your host, Ryan Abraham.
1: Welcome back to the Peristyle Podcast. We're going to keep going with uscfootball.com beat writer uh, Dan Weber talking about this USC victory over Utah. We're going to talk a little bit about Minnesota. We still have to get to uh, more of your questions. Uh, Let's see. We have one. This is an interesting one, Dan. This one is from... uh, Columbus. So if someone uh, calling in from Columbus, Ohio, maybe they're a big Andre Walker fan. I don't know. Here we go. Here's a a question from another Chris.
3: Hi, this is uh, Christopher Mullins from uh, Columbus, Ohio. Long time Trojans fan. Can't stand the Buckeyes. I had a couple of thoughts or questions. Um, First, I wanted to know why they don't try Isaiah Wiley or TJ Bryant or someone else at corner. Because every time I watch the games with Torian Harris, it looks like he's on his heels all the time. And it seems like we're going to have to get somebody else at that cornerback spot. Number two, what's going on with uh, Armistead? They haven't put any updates out or said what's going on, whether he's been cleared or not. Hang up and listen. Thanks.
2: Hey, uh, Chris, uh, you may be in Columbus and you may be, uh, you know, Maybe it's that uh, autographed Terrell Pryor uh, telephone that you're using, handset that you're using. That, no, uh, you will find out. If Armand Armstead is cleared, you will not need a telephone or a radio or a newspaper or anything else. You'll probably hear it from here, uh, just, uh, you know, the noise that, that that's going to generate. Uh, honestly, as Lane said last night, I'm not privy to this discuss- guy. You know, he was asked, you know, it's, it's more than six months now and they've been doing tests, and they really haven't come up with an answer. Uh, Are are people concerned and discussing about the fact that, you know, we're past the six-month mark and nothing? And Lane said, I'm sure those discussions are being held. I'm not privy to those discussions. I mean, it has been clearly a privacy issue uh, for a lot of different reasons, I think, Uh, but, you know, with Lane and, uh, and with the coaches and the parents, and Armand and his doctors, um, I know he, he told us at first that, you know, he, would be tre- he was being treated by a cardiologist and one of the top USC cardiologists. And now the last thing we actually, when we really got into any detail, Armand did say uh, a couple of months ago that, you know, he was not being treated by the cardiologist, but he was being treated by the blood specialist uh, uh, and, and with, with the tests that, that they were doing. Uh, I mean, I think there's a chance that it's one of those once in a, a lifetime episodes. They happen, and no one, maybe they can ever replicate exactly what it was that put him in the hospital. What it was that was giving him that chest pain. Uh, it may not be, you know, replicatable, or if that's a word, uh, and they may not be able to create those circumstances. They've certainly let him, uh, you know, push himself hard in practice with everything except contact. Uh, you know, I could come up with a couple of scenarios as to what could possibly be doing that uh, that would allow him to, you know, run all out and exercise all out and get himself into really good shape and yet not allow him to take any contact at all. Uh, but that would be speculation on my part. And, and, and the coaches just are absolutely not going there. And, and I've had a few, you know, one-on-ones with Armand and he's not going there, I mean they've been very good about saying we're not gonna go and talk about the the medical stuff, and they're not and so the fact that you haven't heard anything basically tells us that there's nothing that is public that uh that anyone is gonna is gonna be able to say. I mean, I can't believe for example, the coaches don't know more than they're telling us, but it's it's clearly it's not something that they're uh, allowed to share, and and rightly so. I mean, they shouldn't be telling us, uh, you know, private medical information that, that could really be, you know, affecting this, uh, you know this kid's entire life. And so we'll we'll see. I think we put that one on, you know, when we're ready, when they're ready to tell us, and when they know what they know. We're not doctors, so we shouldn't probably need that information to be second guessing them. Uh, so anyway, that's the uh, the Armand situation. As far as cornerbacks uh, they like torn torn does seem to uh, always be in the in the spotlight good and bad um, you know he'll uh, he made the interception that pretty much ended the threat last week he was right on the in the right spot to pick up the block kick yes uh, Saturday uh, wow. they like a lot about him uh, he also though is seems to be in on those plays where it looks like he um he he didn't do something correctly, and the problem you have, even if you go to practice is you don't know exactly what the defensive call was. you don't always know what the responsibility was were they covering for somebody else uh he has you know he does slip uh at times and you think okay that's his fault or uh you know could be a you know a field issue the other night where he he looks like he uh you know, uh, kind of one of those painted spots on the on the turf uh, seemed to uh, you know cause him to slide on a play. Uh, I don't know that I would focus on you know any one guy. I mean, people are also calling out Tony Burnett uh, for man-to-man issues on that last penalty, especially. Um, I think it's just they need to play more guys, and they play more guys in practice. They don't play them in games. We're not sure why. They say they want to. Uh, it doesn't look like there's a great deal of difference. I mean, our basic judgment in preseason, and it's harder probably to judge the defensive backs than anybody because you're you're still not sure what all the techniques that they're using and what combinations and all that. So evaluating guys without knowing exactly what the call is probably is more than we can do. But it looked to us like there wasn't a great deal of separation uh, with a lot of those guys, with an Anthony Brown, uh, with a Drew McAllister at safety. Um, uh, it just looked like they had, you know, Isaiah Wiley, obviously, uh, junior college kid, didn't play here in the spring. Some of that, again, could be a complexity issue, you know, that, that they don't think they're up to speed yet on, um, like an Isaiah Wiley, on all the, all the defenses and the adjustments and the combinations. Now, again, they weren't supposed to be doing as much of that, but it, it does look like there's an issue where they just aren't sure that they trust the guy yet. Uh, That's probably got to change. They probably got to get more kids ready to play and uh, keep fresher kids out there. And, um, and uh, they say there are going to be some changes made in, in how they approach the secondary this week. We will see.
1: We'll see at their practice tomorrow. Um, all right, next one. Well, we got but JJ. That, that,
2: to some extent, that's the issue. I have told people you don't go to practice, you may have a better shot at deciding, <laughs> at, at predicting what's going to happen this week than I do because I'm at practice and yeah. I try to transfer what I'm seeing at practice to the game. That may not always happen. Right. <laughs> that's kind of the problem. You know, we have guys who don't go to practice who make predictions about the game and they turn out to be more correct than we are sometimes because there isn't a follow through maybe necessarily from what you see in practice to what happens on the game in the game. And I think that's an issue that has to really be solved by these coaches. They really do have to uh, make that carry over from the practice field to the game um, a a little closer.
1: I agree with you there, Dan. Uh, Well, let's go. JJB. First, he agrees with your Lane Kiffin offensive coordinator assessment. He'd like to get someone in there to maybe a, a co-coordinator to, to help call plays and stuff like that. Um, but also, he wanted to know, um, he understands def- that Monty Kiffin's a great defensive coach. In his career, no one's questioning that, but it seems like he wants to coach until he's 80 years old. Calling the plays in Division One football is a high-stress job. How long do you think he can do that efficiently? From 2001 and on, Joe Paternos, Penn State, was rated in the top 10 only three times and Bobby Bowden's Florida State, not once. Would it not be a Better move to go out and get a younger, outstanding defensive co-coordinator. Let Monty Kippen just be an advisor on defense. What do you think about that?
2: Uh, <laughs>
1: they actually have a defensive coordinator named Ed Orgeron.
2: <laughs> yeah, I mean the titles, and they've got an offensive coordinator named uh, you know uh, Kennedy Palomalu, uh actually. Uh, so the titles don't mean anything. I think it's you know the the responsibilities and um, all. Uh, you know, what are the voices in the room when they're going over the game plans? And then, uh, what exactly, uh, you know, in terms of, uh, of how they make the calls, for example, I know, you know, they went into man, for example, on that last uh, possession by Minnesota, Monty had come down from the press box after giving, you know, that 83 yard nine play, uh, touchdown, they gave up to that, you know, brand new freshman taking the place of their starter had ever played before in college football, and he just moved him right down the field against a, a really hapless, ineffective zone, or soft coverage anyway. Right. And, and I know I we talk to Monty sometimes, and, and you know, he, what kind of zone would you play? Or, what would you do? Know, and that's not what we want to do. It just didn't look like it worked at all. So he gets down on the sidelines, and whether they were able to convince him or you know, with just the players or whatever, then he goes back out and they're in man and they get the interception right away. And uh, I don't know, I, you know, I, in terms of how you would call uh, the secondary, you know, I don't know that, I don't think it's an age thing. I don't think that uh, that would not be my, uh, the place I'd go. I think it might just be a scheme thing uh, when you've had basic, you know, your basic, you uh, as Monty was a great college coach at uh, Nebraska and part of two absolute dynasties with Bob Devaney and then um, with uh, Tom Osborne and did everything a college coach could do and uh, as a recruiter and as a coach and all of that but he basically had 25 years you know in the NFL as a defensive guru working with real some really good NFL players and I'm just thinking it's a different world in college football, coaching nineteen and twenty-year-olds, you know, that are ten years younger and and have only twenty hours a week to devote to football. And uh, I, I think maybe more—that's more the adjustment of of, of schemes and uh, and complexity and uh, what can college kids really, really master. How much how much uh, adjustment can they make, and how much can they, you know, you ask them to do. Uh, out there that to me is the uh is the main issue uh not uh not a coach's age
1: all right uh well thanks for that one jj let's see we have mark child in la quinta he's like just to confirm your previous discussion on trying to quote move past the ncaa sanctions quote un- end quote i got angry listening to the quote unquote unbiased versus announcers uh ND alum Ted Robinson and Arizona alum Glenn Parker repeatedly refer to the sanctions and penalties imposed on USC during the broadcast. I stopped counting after ten references. You are right it will not go away no matter how much Pat would like it to like it to. He's referring to Pat Hayden and something you actually wrote up in the war room, Dan.
2: Yeah, that's a good observation. See, we don't get to see the game broadcast uh and, and maybe do on you know on replay and you may not even be uh, paying as much attention to the announcers. That's a really good observation. I think that's an observation that someone should put in an email and send it to Pat uh, and send it to uh, uh, President Nikias because I think those are the maybe the things that weren't calculated into we're just going to get past this uh, and not really uh, offering a, a defense and not really, uh, you know, offering a defense other than a. Uh, the one that they offered, uh, you know, internally in the case in the NCAA, but they didn't offer publicly. Uh, and uh, that's uh, – that, uh, you know what? I hadn't even thought of how the announcers – they're all going to be different, but how much they play up uh, uh, all of that, you know, NCAA stuff. Uh, I mean, most of them, for example, you do know in the preseason stuff, that most of those guys thought they were going to be affected by the sanctions this year in terms of players, that they thought they don't have any depth this year because of the sanctions, which couldn't be further than the truth. They've got a full roster. They've got as many players on scholarship as they could possibly have uh, or as they would have had in any other normal year. So it isn't a factor this year. But what is a factor is that negative uh, publicity that they keep getting week after week after week. I mean, I was stunned by the Utah uh, game notes in the Utah newspaper stories and that uh, just totally playing up, you know, quote, the massive cheating scandal at USC, quote, unquote. Uh, just people don't know what they're talking about. But, you know, it's kind of reasonable. If you're writing about USC from the outside and they've got the worst penalties in modern college football history, going all the way back to the SMU death penalty, you've got to think well, there must have been something that USC was doing. And if you say, well, you know, actually, USC wasn't uh, guilty of anything, uh, wasn't involved in any recruiting, any uh, scandals, any recruiting violations, wasn't involved in any academic fraud, blah, blah, blah. People would look at you and say, well, then why do they get those terrible penalties? They must have been doing something, right? And that's kind of the general feeling out there. And with USC not basically defending itself and making its case, Uh, it's going to be around for a long, long time. And for people to think that it's, you know, if we just take it, shut up and, uh, it'll get behind us, it's not going to get behind us. And, um, USC, I think needs to understand that and needs to come up with a different strategy because they, right now, most people think that USC was, uh, had to be guilty of some institutional violations that where they cooperated with, uh, some really bad things, or they wouldn't have been given those kinds of penalties. So uh, that's a really good observation. Um, uh, I, and I think someone at USC ought to be talking to the versus people right now and saying, "Look, you're wrong. You know, you ought to know better. You know, Ted Robinson's—I think the West Coast guy—he uh, should know better. And uh, somebody needs to tell these people. Maybe that—you know—I'm I'm almost." Uh, thinking that USC should create a position for someone whose job it is on a weekly basis to answer every single misstatement in the media. Uh, and, and basically, you know, at a fairly high level, you know, at, a, at a, almost a Dave Roberts level. I know they've got a new person, you know, in charge of public relations for the university. and I would think that would be a, you know, you know you're know you going out for a $6 billion fundraiser all around the world and all that. Why would you allow Negative uh, statements, incorrect negative statements about the university to be out there. So uh, I think USC has not done a good job defending itself publicly, making its case publicly, and I don't think it's over. And they should be figuring out right now how do we sit down with the guys from Versus and go over the whole story and say, look, you need to know this. You look, you know, to people who know the case, you come across as dumb. You come across as uninformed. You come across as uh, one-sided and you come across as anti USC and that's wrong. Uh, and so that would be my plan. Um, anyway.
1: All right. No, hey, we, we, a we it mostly, mostly NCAA free for this podcast. We had the one question come in it actually came in while we were <laughs> taping. So I thought it was a good one. We should play it.
2: And it was in the context of the game broadcast. That's yeah. what people understand. There's no separation. People can say, uh, well, we don't want to hear about the NSA. You can't win it if you're listening to the game and the guys are, you know, ten times talking about talking about it. You can't walk away from it. Now you've got two choices: you either let them do it, or you you figure out a way to to get them, uh, you know, informed and you know make your case.
1: Well, uh, we got one last thing, Dan. I don't want to like bury the lead here, but we didn't really get to talk about Mark Tyler at all in the, in the tailback rotation. And you talk about watching practices and we used to watch back in the day when Alan Bradford would rip off 80 yard runs and then not playing the game. And people would question us. We're like, look, I can just tell you what happened in practice. Uh, I got, I was on uh, Mason in Ireland this week and they asked me like how many snaps Mark Tyler would get. And, and I'm like, you know, it's almost impossible to tell because he, they could come out and say, he's going to play and he could play once uh, you know, one snap for a goal line or something, or he could come out and, and, And play a lot I I guess between 10 and 12 and obviously that was off I mean he came in and became the featured back and as soon as uh DJ Morgan put that ball on the ground I think everyone in the Coliseum knew he probably wasn't going to come back in the game again I was a little surprised I thought they'd work Dylan Baxter in more than what they did and it seemed like Tyler might even slow down a little bit sometimes when he was getting a lot of work there but what did you think about the whole running back situation and what Mark Tyler did
2: yeah, I mean, I think uh, Mark was surprised, because as Mark said, you know, I, they only got me ready for some short yardage and goal line stuff, uh, you know, so he, he wasn't ready to be able, you know, to be playing that much. Uh, I think it's interesting to know that, uh, you know, we talked to Dylan afterwards, or, you know, I did, and Dylan said he got one carry, and the one carry he got, he only got it because, um uh, uh I guess it was Curtis McNeil was supposed to be in there and and they couldn't find him. So Dylan went in there and I know people have said, well, he was kind of tentative on one run. He wasn't even supposed to be in the game on that play. So it was hard to say, you know, I think we've said something, well, you got one carry. And he said, well, I wasn't actually supposed to get that one. They they couldn't find Curtis. So I ended up out there and, uh, uh, i don't have a good explanation he had a, a really good week of practice uh we saw it the coaches saw it they talked about it um he went in uh, you know the obligatory first time in dylan got the uh, screen pass which uh i think the utah, utah guys were probably pretty aware of the fact that he was in and a candidate to catch a screen pass because that's what he did against minnesota as well uh mark tyler you know you got to give him credit. Uh, you know he's he's worked hard on his own, and then he had the scout team work, and then he had you know some work this week. He certainly you couldn't have even begun to guess that he'd get 24 carries, which was more than 12 games last year. He did not carry the ball 24 times. He had one game, Arizona game, was the only time he carried it that much. So that probably wouldn't have been a good bet, uh, a good guess as to how many times is Mark Tyler going to get the ball, but. By the third carry, you just saw him when he he he'd get that six-yard um, sweep left where he just fit in so perfectly with the blocking. He relaxed, he let the blocking develop, then he accelerated into the end zone, and you just think, okay, that's what an experienced running back looks like. He just knows how to fit in. He knows where uh, where the blocking is going to develop, and uh that's why you, you almost – and against their defensive line with the big, strong guys they had probably was a pretty good answer. Although, you know, you got some good, good stuff out of Morgan. Um, Morgan told us afterwards he's okay. He's not going to let that, you know, bother him and what have you. But um, with this offensive line and the way they're doing things, you know, Mark may be uh, – you know, just the exactly, uh, right fit. And it was great to see for Mark, you know, and I was, it's a good story, not just a football story. It's a good story for Mark. It's a good story for Lane. I think Lane has handled this really well for Pat Hayden. I think they've all, um, they've all handled it well. I mean, I think this has been a, uh, in a, you know, Mark, uh, you know, doing all the things he has to do, going to get a degree really, I think now understands, uh, the value of it, and uh, as he said, you know, he, he just turned 23, and he said he's got to grow up. You know, he's been sort of a wise guy, a nice wise guy, a guy everybody likes and has fun with. But uh, I think uh, this might be a really good, you know, episode in his life if he uses it properly and an episode uh, in his football life. Uh, you know, if he wants to play afterward, which you certainly think he does, you um, You know, he's got a chance now. I mean, that was a good performance um, against a good defense uh, that is going to look good for Mark. Uh, I mean, just, you know, moving the pile, and just the different things he did, considering he's not 100% yet and uh, is going to play himself back into shape. But that's a great story for USC. I think they've handled it well in in virtually every way you can do it, um, uh, personnel-wise, coaching-wise. Uh, you know they didn't rush him back because they needed him. They didn't do things that you know maybe would have happened somewhere else. I, I think USC people can be pretty proud, and I think Mark is, and the coaches are. I think everybody's fairly proud at this you know point, and um, you know it's up to Mark to keep it going, and he seems like he he understands that, and and, and so that's a that's a gigantic plus for this uh, for this program. I think at this point, handling now the rest of them then the other guys, and as Lane said, this is somebody's going to be unhappy. You cannot have four running backs. Uh, and how that's going to work out, you know, personally I would have loved to have seen them still be doing some of the Wildcat stuff that they did last year. Now they thought last year maybe with Dylan they, they put in too much stuff. But I thought the Wildcat stuff they did with him, I mean we saw him uh, at Stanford last year when he was healthy before he got hurt. Uh with the way they could use that in goal lines and what have you, you would love to see him uh, create that role again for him, uh, especially red zone or whatever. And Now, it's not easily, uh, you know, constructed into an offense that, that also has a Matt Barkley. Uh, but, but I do think they were doing it really well last year, and uh, I would like to see, you know, Dylan have a role as a goal line Wildcat guy, um, where they quickly go from one to the other and put the ball on his hands, you know, as a run-pass option. And he's also a, a pass-catching option uh, where he can slip out and, and catch the ball. I would love to see him be able to do that. They've gone away from that. But, uh, you know, here I'm talking about, you know, not being too complex. But I thought they, that was <laughs> one of the layers of complexity last year that they added that I thought they did real well. I hope it's not the fact that they're worried about the shotgun snaps that's keeping them from, um, uh, from running him as the, uh, as the wildcat guy. But, uh, anyway, we'll see how this, uh, how this works out, but it's probably not something that's going to help, uh, for running backs. I-, I wouldn't think I, I think somebody or two somebody's probably, uh, aren't going to get as much work now. Cause I don't see how you can't go with, uh, with mark tyler after uh, after saturday
1: all right well great stuff dan we had you on for a whole hour man i don't think we've ever done that before uh,
2: no i don't think so <laughs> i can talk for an hour i guarantee you that but uh <laughs> thanks a lot they're good questions that you do you, thing you like about just you know you go on the board and you go on the p and you go on you know and we've got a lot of smart people who, who know what they're talking about and uh one of the things you like to read about them and listen to the questions and, and their thoughts is is they think about things that you really you know they're ahead of the game and they they are uh, in the right place saying the right things and uh, it's it's a really good discussion to have with uh, with our guys they uh, they're on top of it and they're 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 asking the right questions.
1: They certainly are, Dan. We appreciate you coming on and everyone. Thank you for sending in those questions. We'll be back again next week talking more about the USC football team after they play the Syracuse Orange Men. Stay tuned for that.